All right. Also, welcome back, college students. I know I said it last week, but I know some of you straggle back then. So welcome back. But hey, so we, we are in our We Want a King series. And in this series, what we're doing is we are uh, kind of taking a survey of First and Second Samuel. And we're looking at the first three kings in Israel's history. King Saul, King David, and in a while, King Solomon we'll look at as well. And so far, what we've seen in this series is... Uh, Israel cries out for a king. God gives them the sort of king they want. He is a a Thor-looking guy named Saul. Saul ends up being disobedient and indifferent and sinful. And so God removes him slowly from kingship and even his line from being kings. And he, he brings on and he anoints this man after his own heart, David, who he slowly kind of raises up into being a, a king. And so last week, what we saw specifically is that Saul had grown very jealous of David. He was chasing him all over the ancient Near East. And David had this opportunity to kill Saul before Saul could kill him in a cave. And, and David chose mercy rather than vengeance. And so that's kind of what we looked at last week. And so today, we're actually going to hop into the first like seven to ten years of David's kingship. David is finally going to become king today, okay? And so, like I said, it's a bit of a survey that we're taking through First and Second Samuel. And so we are hopping over a lot of the end of First Samuel. And so just to give you kind of briefly all the story that we're hopping over, the stories that we're hopping over is... Saul and David kept kind of doing this dance where Saul was kind of chasing David, but he seemed a little bit less enthusiastic about it. And David still had these opportunities where he would be merciful to Saul. And so the end of uh, 1 Samuel really is just David avoiding Saul, hiding out, kind of gathering a group of people, really that kind of become the start of his cabinet and his kingdom. Uh, what eventually happens is Saul and some of his sons are out to battle the Philistines. The Philistines have come into Israel and they're out at battle. Saul's three sons die, including Jonathan, David's best friend, who we've talked about in this series. And then Saul is kind of cornered and he knows the Philistines are coming. He knows they're going to get him. And so he asks his armor bearer to drive a sword through him. His armor bearer says, no, I'm not going to do that to the king. And so Saul either does it himself or an Amalekite walking by helps him do that. It's unclear because 31 of 1 Samuel says that Saul fell on it. And chapter 1 of 2 Samuel says the Amalekite did it. So it's not that there's a contradiction there. It's just that we don't have enough details to know exactly how this went down. And so either way, what we're flying over is Saul is dead. And just like that, his reign as king is over. And it really seems from what we've seen in the book of 1 Samuel is that most of his kingship was marked by his jealousy, envy, anger, disobedience, indifference to God. And so, like I said, we're going to be in 2 Samuel today. And we're going to look at these first five chapters. And we're going to really zoom in on chapters 2 through 5 today of 2 Samuel. Where we get to see these first few years uh, of David as king. He's finally going to be king. He's not just going to be running around Israel. Like he's going to be the actual king of Israel. And we get to see the first 7 to 10 years about that. Now, these first five chapters of 2 Samuel. What's interesting about these chapters or what can be difficult even about these chapters is they feel uh, a lot more historical 
than other parts of 1 Samuel so far. And I'm not saying that those parts weren't historical, but as we've talked about in this series, these authors aren't merely writing history, they're writing history theologically. They're, they're trying to say, hey, here's where God moved in history. Here's what God showed us in this moment in history. And, and it's a little bit more clear in a lot of the chapters that we've been in so far, what the author's trying to communicate or what God was doing. But we're going to see today, it's, it's kind of like just very historical and you kind of read through it and the author isn't making a whole lot of comments on, on what we're supposed to get out of this history. And it can be really difficult when you read parts and sections of the Bible like this. You kind of go like, what? why is this in here? What's going on? How, how do I learn from God's word? And so here's, here's what I want to say is often when we have these long sections of the Bible that seem more historical, feel more historical than other sections that kind of more clearly display who God is or his word, like what he's speaking to the people of God. I think the first thing we have to see is sometimes the author is just doing the work to set up the story of what's to come. Like that some of the history is needed there to understand where God is moving in other places and other times too. But I'll also say this, I think a lot of times when you read these long sections that have a lot of history in them and just feel historical in nature, you can find that the author has these little details scattered throughout these chapters. And often it's sometimes these little abnormal details in the telling of Israel's history that actually help us see what God's trying to communicate. Okay, like in today's, in today's story, there's going to be these details that kind of help us see the contrast between the sort of king that Saul was and the sort of king that David's becoming, or even the sort of king that Israel wants. Uh, sometimes these details are going to help us to see David's own shortcomings as a king and how that might be something that plays out farther in the story. Uh, and then other times, these small details are going to show how God is, is working in this time or place. And so today, as we kind of go through these chapters, we're not going to go through every verse, but as we go through some of the verses, and I summarize the rest of it for us, we're going to be looking at the details, and I think we're going to find that these details are, in these details, we're going to see God, we're going to see ourselves and, and, and the nature of our own humanity, and we're even going to see uh, Ways to approach God in these details. So that's kind of where we're going to be at today. So here's what we'll do exactly. We're going to look at three kind of sets of details in these chapters 2 through 5 of 2 Samuel. It's, there's going to be a story about two generals. There's going to be some not-so-minor details about David and all his wives and concubines. And then we're going to see some details about how David approaches God in, in a war-torn time and place. And so that's, that's where we're going to be at today. We're going to be looking at the details to see what we can learn about God, learn about ourselves, even learn about how we can approach God, okay? So let's hop into it. Let's start today by reading the verses where David finally becomes king, right? We've been in this for a while. He was anointed quite a while ago, and now David finally becomes king. It's going to be at the start of chapter 2 of 2 Samuel. The words will be on the screen. And right before this, just to kind of set it up, the news of Saul's and Jonathan's deaths come to David, and David just laments and grieves before all the people around him 
over their deaths. He's very sad for Saul and Jonathan, which is just an interesting thing about David knowing his story with Saul. But chapter 2 starts with David being crowned king in a sense. Uh, Verse 1. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I grow up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now, may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. So let's stop there for a minute. So David finally becomes king. But right away what we see happens is David is kind of king only over the southern part of Israel, only over Judah and kind of his family and that kind of region. And and so David becomes king. He shows goodness to the city that was kind to and buried Saul and Jonathan. But in the meantime, what we see is Abner, Saul's general or his commander, he says, no, 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 no. Like, I'm going to lose my five-star general rank. I'm not going to like not let this happen. And so he takes one of Saul's sons that are still alive, Ishbosheth, if you could say that five times fast, and he makes Ishbosheth king over the rest of Israel. And so it's just important for us to see at the beginning of David's story as king, it's, it, there's somewhat of a difficulty in the transfer of power, right? There's somewhat, somewhat of a disagreement in the transfer of power, something we've never experienced in our country. And, and so there's this difficulty in this transfer of power. And so you have one king who is kind of over all, all, most of Israel, and then you have David who's king over less of Israel. And you've kind of got this, uh, it's almost like a mini civil war is brewing between two different parts of Israel. Again, remember, these are all uh, brothers and countrymen in, in that sense. And so uh, this is how David's kingship starts with somewhat of a civil war kind of brewing. And then what what we're going to see in chapters 2 and 3 is a lot of details are given to this rivalry that comes about between Abner, that that general we talked about, that commander of Saul's or really Ishbosheth's side of things, between him and then David's commander or general named Joab. And and Really, we're going to talk about a lot of those details. So let's see how their kind of rivalry between these two generals, how it starts. Verse 12 of chapter 2. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Manahem to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zuriah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. 
Then they arose and passed over by number 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in the opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazurum, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Okay, let's pause there. So, you've got this kind of civil war brewing. And so the two sides say, hey, let's hang out. Let's have some, uh, somewhat of a peace summit, if you will. Let's hang out by the pool and, and kind of talk. And so you've got these two kings of Israel hanging out with a bunch of their army men. And one commander, Ishbosheth, Saul's really, Abner, he says, let's have our guys wrestle. <laughs> like, let's have our guys fight a little bit. Just a little friendly, physical competition, okay? And then jo Joab goes, Sure, sure, okay, and so they start wrestling, and then it turns into 12 double homicides all of a sudden, like, it really escalated, and I know that seems crazy, but if you ever watch men wrestle, this is a weird thing men do throughout their lives, like, teenage men especially, early 20s, they love to just say, hey, let's wrestle, an amazing thing happens, always, like, not always, but very often, one of them all of a sudden starts taking it a lot more seriously than the other, right? Where there was just like kind of a friendly wrestle and then the other's like, oh, we're, this is to the death, right? Like, and then it's awkward being the friends on the side, being like, hey, like don't, hey, you know? Uh, and so I, I imagine this happened and then it was just like a chain reaction and they're all just like breaking out their swords, stabbing each other's side, all falling to the down. And then just what we see in the story is just a, a total battle breaks out. And David's side is really winning. Now, what I'm going to summarize for us in the rest of chapter 2 there is Abner is like, I'm going to take off. And so Abner takes off. He's like, I'm not about to get killed in this battle. He starts running away. Now, Joab, the general, he has a brother named Asahel who is very fast. Okay, it says that he's very fast, cross-country runner or something. So he starts chasing after Abner. So you got the brother of Joab chasing Abner. And Abner's like, hey, man, stop chasing me, okay? I don't want to, like, let's just... The wrestling got out of hand. I get it. Just leave me alone. I'm out of here. And, he, and, and Asael's like, dude, I'm the fastest around. I'm not going to stop chasing you. So Asael's still chasing him. And so then Joab goes, listen, man, I'm going to strike you down. Like, if you don't stop, I'm going to strike you down. Okay? This is also, guys, this is a fair warning. When a guy says that, he probably means it. And so uh, Joab says that. Asael's like, nope, I'm the fastest man alive. I'm going to keep chasing you. And so then Joab turns around, takes his spear, and even not the sharp side, the butt side of the spear drives it through Asael. It's kind of like a little bit of an overreaction. Like, and Asael dies because I, I don't think they had hospitals back then <laughs> like we do now. I, I don't even know if hospitals today could figure that situation out. A spear all the way through a person. And so Asael dies. Abner takes off. Joab comes and he sees his dead brother. And now this rivalry between these two generals of these two different kings in one country and one nation is born out of a lot of bloodshed. And so what happens kind of next in the story is uh, essentially uh, Abner keeps serving Ishbosheth. Eventually Ishbosheth kind of accuses Abner of an indiscretion with a, a concubine of Saul's. And we don't know if Abner actually did this or not. Uh, but Abner gets so mad at Ishbosheth, his king, that he says, you know what? 
forget this. I, you're not going to be king anymore. I'm going to help David become king. He's the one. God anointed him anyways. I don't know why I've been fighting it. I'm going to figure out how to help him become king. And so what Abner begins to do in the story is he kind of brokers a deal with David and Ishbosheth's side for this transfer of power to say, okay, here, let's bring the rest of Israel under King David. What do you need? They make a little deal that we'll talk about later. David brings in Abner for a feast. Abner is now just kind of accepted. He's just bebopping around Israel with, with David and with David's warriors. Meanwhile, Joab, whose brother was killed by Abner, is out fighting some battles. And he comes back and everybody's like, hey, Joab, uh, you know, yeah, Abner's been around. In fact, I saw him eating with David. And so Joab, of course, is like, this is horrible. And he goes to King David, and he, he's essentially saying, David, like, this guy is just deceiving you. He just wants power. He's just going to kill you like this. He doesn't, he, we can't trust this guy. He killed my brother. We can't trust him. We don't hear David's response there, but we hear it in other places. And essentially, David, I think, is saying something to the degree of like, listen, Joab, transfers of, powers, uh, of power is, is, is messy, it's, it's hard. Civil wars are difficult. We can't just kill all of our fellow countrymen. So I know he did that to your brother, but we have to, we have to let him be brought into the fold. We, we made this deal. He, he lived out his side of it. And so he's here now. Well, Joab really does not like that. So he comes, out, comes up with a plan to kill Abner behind David's back. And we see that unfold in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 3. This is what it says. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So we'll stop there. So Joab talks to David. He doesn't like David's answer. He has power in the kingdom too. So he sends some of his messengers to bring Abner in. They're talking really quietly. I imagine he kills uh, Abner in the same place his brother was struck. It seems like maybe that's why that detail's there. And this is kind of the story. This is kind of how the story almost ends with these two uh, generals and their rivalry. David really doesn't like what Joab ended up doing. He, he actually puts a curse on him and I think some, and his family and stuff. And then he commands that Joab has to go mourn publicly for Abner as punishment. But, you know, David's not totally, you know, putting him on trial or anything like that. But that's what David does. And so this is the story that takes up like two to three chapters in 2 Samuel. This story about these two generals who have this bloody rivalry who I could just imagine if they were around today, each of us would pick a side and each of us would be able to see, no, I can really see it from Abner's perspective. No, I can really see it from Joab's perspective and kind of talk uh, like, uh, through it in those ways. And, and you kind of go to these chapters in the Bible and you go like, why, why is this in here? Why is this in the Bible? Well, I want us, I, I've been force feeding you guys uh, some Eugene Peterson quotes in this series. I'm going to force feed you another, okay? Uh, because he just puts it far better than I could. He kind of talks through this exact question. And so the words to this quote will be on the screen. This is what Eugene Peterson, a Presbyterian, a former Presbyterian pastor, because he passed away, says about this exact story. He says, we read page after page of this kind of thing and think, 
what's this doing in the Bible? I don't want to read about jerks like Abner and Joab. I get enough of their kind in the newspapers and on television. I want good news. I want the David story. I want to read about Jesus. What the Bible needs is a good editor. Why waste good ink on Abner and Joab? Why does the Bible have this stuff in it? If God is working here, speaking here, why don't things work out better? Why don't people behave better? Why are boneheads like Joab and Abner allowed to take up so much space? If God is at the center of things, why does history get so messed up? The answer is quite obvious, even if uncongenial. This is the context and company in which God chooses to work out our salvation. Abner and Joab are also in this story. And the sooner we get used to it, the better. We find wonderful companions in this way of faith and discipleship. Men and women of grace and beauty, loyalty and prayer, Jonathans and Abigails, Samuels and Ahimelechs. But we find ourselves joined by Abners and Joabs under many various aliases. The, the first thing I want us to see from these details about these two warring generals is Joabs and Abners are in the story because God is working in a sort of world that is full of Joabs and Abners. In fact, if we read their, our Bibles and there weren't stories of Joabs and Abners, we'd almost say, is this even reality? But God is working in a world full of Joabs and Abners, and that's why you find stories like this in the Bible. The author doesn't really tell us what lessons we're supposed to learn from Joab and Abner. They don't say, hey, by the way, I think there's some obvious lessons in there that you can learn just from the evil of their violence. But the author doesn't really let us know. And I think it's because we are to see that God works, God works in a world that's full of Joabs and, and Abners. That, that although that there is much evil in this world and many sinful people in this world, God, he can still work out his purposes of redemption and restoration of all things, even though there are Joabs and Abners in the world. Even more, he can in some sense use them in a way or even what they do can propel his promises forward. That's how powerful God is. Another theologian that, that speaks to this dynamic really well is Walter Brueggemann. And he has a commentary on First and Second Samuel. And, and this is what he says. His quote will be on the screen as well. He says this. The promise of Yahweh, which is God's name in the Old Testament, if you didn't know that. The, the promise of Yahweh functions hidden in the midst of human action. David's new age wells up in the midst of conventional people who may ignore the promise, but who wind up serving that promise. The narrator lets us see the operation of Yahweh's determined promise through these unwitting characters, their devious words, and their self-serving actions. Through the sordid narrative, the kingdom has advanced a step toward Jerusalem. So as bleak as things can be in the Bible or in this world, 
we have a God who not only doesn't condemn, condone, I should say, condone those evil things, but we have a God who still moves history forward towards restoration, sometimes through those evil things. Not that God wants to use evil means to do those things, to be clear, but God will take broken people and make them serve his purposes, his purposes of promise. That's how powerful God is. That even though at times it looks like sin reigns and at times people are sinning, God is powerful enough to let that propel history towards restoration. In this particular story, we see that Joab and Abner's actions are violent and evil and wrong, and yet it still propels Israel towards the restoration that God intends. It towards David to becoming king. Uh, it propels David toward setting up the capital of Israel in Jerusalem, which is going to be a picture of the new Jerusalem, which is a picture of God's restoration of everything. God is that powerful. So even though it looks like sin is reigning, we have to know that God's working behind the scenes, moving everything to that new Jerusalem. So the author, in telling us these details about Abner and Joab, we, it's totally understandable for us to go, okay, why? Why is that in there? It's important for us to see those details are in there because we know that God is one who works in opposition to evil, but God is so powerful that their evil will only move his story forward towards restoration. Their evil is not more powerful than his work of restoration. And these stories of Joab, Joab and Abner and the stories like that throughout the Bible help us to see that that's how good and powerful our God is. Okay? Or the next kind of set of details that I want us to see in these chapters about David's early kingship is, is David and all his wives uh, and concubines. And, and, and the author really kind of seems to say, hey, I want to make it clear how many wives and concubines that David had through this process of becoming king. We already saw uh, the first place where that uh, happened. We saw the first place where that happened. Essentially, uh, David comes into Hebron setting up his kingdom, and he has two wives with him already. And then uh, we, there's this another really interesting story that has these added details that seem kind of like the author is trying to add these details so that we would kind of perk up and see what's going on. But essentially, when Abner is trying to make this deal of the transfer of power, David says, okay, we can do this, but here's the deal. I want you guys to give me back my first wife, Michal. Now, you guys might remember Michal from other parts of the series. She was Saul's daughter and David's first wife. Now, when David hightailed it into the wilderness to hide from Saul, he, they took Michal and they gave her to a different guy. His name is Paul Tiel. And so David says, hey, give me Michal, my wife, then I'll know. I'll know that you guys are serious about this transfer of power. And see how that plays out in verse 14 of chapter 3 of 2 Samuel. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I prayed the, paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Okay, so David 
who has not been married to Michelle for a long time at this point, many years. I think it's a 10 to 20 years at this point is how long. I might be off on the math there, but it's been many years. And Michelle has remarried this man named Paul Tiel. And David says, hey, you guys want to be serious about this transfer of power? Give me back my first wife. He was really interested in filming a new TLC show called Sister Wives Jerusalem or something. And so, and so, Abner and some of his warriors go over to Michal and Paul Tiel's house and they do this kind of royal kidnapping. And then one of the saddest scenes in the Bible happens. Paul Tiel is just following behind this caravan that has his wife and talking to her and he's just weeping all the way. Paul Tiel loved Michal. We don't, we don't know if Michal wanted to be with David or to stay with Paul Tiel. We don't know, the author doesn't give us those details. But either way, what we know is that Paul Tiel was really sad about this whole situation. And the author, who's been writing a lot of like historical notes here and has been kind of propelling the story forward, he seems to think, hey, it's really important that we get this detail. I think we're supposed to see that David is starting to be kingly in some of the ways we don't want our kings to be kings. He's starting to do things thinking about himself. He's starting to do things not thinking about the consequences of what will be done to others. He's looking like a king in the regions around him rather than the king that's a man after God's own heart in this particular instance. Those aren't all the details that uh, this author gives about David and his wives. You see in verse 13 of chapter 5, this author gives more details. It says this, uh, and David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Okay, there's, a, there's another place that I kind of glossed over a little bit where it talks about, uh, or I skipped over, I should say, David's wives and sons and stuff, and there's probably another wife in that too. And so this author is going out of their way to say, look, David had a lot of wives, David had a lot of concubines. It seems like the author wants to see that David had a problem in how he viewed women. And I think that's important for us to see at this point in the story. And part of the problem with this is, is kings, were not, kings of Israel were not supposed to live this way. If you go to the Pentateuch, in the fifth book in the Pentateuch, that's another way of saying the first five books of the Bible, there's this book called Deuteronomy. And in it, Moses is just kind of it's like a farewell speech saying, hey, this is how you guys need to live. And there's a section in Deuteronomy that's to the, kings, the future kings of Israel. That, that Moses, because God told him, said, hey, there's going to be kings. Here, give outline for them what these kings are going to need to be and how they're going to need to be kings and what they're going to need to do. And even the kings were supposed to write down all of the law as one of their first acts of king. And here is one of the verses that David should have known and should have written down by this point in the story. It's Deuteronomy 17, 17. And this is about what kings are supposed to do or not do. And he, the king, shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. What I think the author wants us to see here is there is a duality to David. And that's what I want us to see here. David is 50% awesome and he's 50% horrible. Like he just is. And in particular, David has a problem in how he views women. David tends to uh, see women as objects, it seems like in the story, for his use. 
David has a problem uh, even in just kind of saying, hey, here's a moment where I could take back some of my power, where I I could do what I want, where I could get what I want, and now that I have the power to do it, I'm going to do it. The author wants us to see that, that David is doing things without remorse because he thinks it's what he's owed. He thinks it's what he deserves. And I think these small details about David, I think they can act as a mirror for us. I think that's what we're supposed to see. I think we're supposed to say, okay, how am I like this? Is this a mirror for me? For instance, are you, are you excelling in life in all sorts of ways? Are you the kind of person that's just like, I'm killing it, all right? I'm sinfully, like honestly, I'm like 50% like I'm killing it or I'm a failure. <laughs> like that's kind of how I, I pendulum swing, all right? And that's a conversation for me and my therapist later. But are you killing it in life? Do you, oh man, I'm doing so good. I'm doing so many great things. I think that what you need to see in David's story that can act as a mirror is that seemingly small decisions can eventually turn your heart from God. Because we're going to see that in part of David's story later on. How about this? Have you been given power in some way? Do you have power in some way? Maybe you're a manager, maybe you're whatever. You have some kind of power over people in some way. What David's story here shows us is a little power can seduce you into, th- into taking what you want despite the consequences. Giving yourself what you feel entitled to. I think David's acts here with women and concubines and wives, they act for a mirror to us in a more painful way in regards to our own lust. Perhaps some of us in here, our lust is a hunger for beauty, but perhaps some of us need to see that our lust is a lot like David's lust here, and it's really a marring of the image of God on someone. That we are more comfortable viewing the people that we sexually want as objects rather than actual people. People with God's face on them. The image of God is on all of humanity. And I think very often our lust is us objectifying people, making them objects for our own use and pleasure. Is David acting as a mirror for you in any of these ways? If he is, notice, continue to notice your power issues, notice your lust issues, and deal with them. Don't just feel guilt-ridden about them. Don't just walk around with the heavy burden. Turn away from them. Turn to God. Get some help. Notice those things because those things will turn your heart from God And often those things will cause you to harm and hurt others, whether you know it or not. Let David's life act as a mirror for us. Okay, I want to look at these final set of details really quickly. These final set of details that I want us to look at is is how David goes into battle or does anything as a king. How he makes moves as a king. It's really a stark contrast to Saul, who we remember Saul wanted to kind of use God superstitiously, kind of as a lucky token to help him win battles. He seemed to be indifferent to what God actually wanted. And David, he seems to truly want to seek God in these events. Let's reread uh, chapter 2, verse 1, where... uh, We see some of this. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? And he said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also. So 
just interesting that before David makes his first move as king, he says, God, do you even want me to go to that place? Should I go there? And God says, yeah, go, go ahead, go there. Now we see David, he does this in battle as well. The Philistines have uh, raided Israel, have invaded Israel again. And we see in verse 19 of chapter 5, David do something similar. It says this, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. Okay, so David inquires again. Then verse 23, the Philistines come back around and look, this one's interesting. God gives them different instructions. But verse 23, and when David inquired of the Lord, he said, you shall not go up, go around to the rear and come against them opposite of the basalm trees. And you have these moments in David's kingship where he just, he inquires of the Lord. He asks what the Lord, uh, what it is he should do. And if you can get past kind of how this is happening in the midst of war, like this is, that's a hard hurdle for a lot of us. And I would just say this, remember ancient Israel is a very different place than, than today. And God works in a world full of Joabs and Abners. But if you can hop over that hurdle, what I want us to see is these are the moments where David is a man after God's own heart. And even if you read other parts of this story, there's these other moments of virtue in these same chapters where David is clearly doing the right thing, where it seems like he's a man after God's own heart. And I think the contrast here that we see between David's way and Saul's way is there so that we would see a way to relate to God that Saul didn't partake in. I think what we should see in this story, in these details of David inquiring of the Lord, is that we can live a life where we run our own lives, or we can live a life where we pursue God and inquire of the Lord and say, God, what should I do? How should I do this? What should I do next? Jesus has done such a powerful work through his cross and the resurrection and his life that we, can't, we have the Holy Spirit in us. So we can even a more, in a more powerfully way, powerful way than David inquire of the Lord because the Spirit is residing with us all the time. Now, some, uh, my question really for us is just, are we people that inquire of the Lord like David does here before making moves? I think some of you are. I think most of us are not. I think most of us are not because we kind of, we say a prayer and we don't hear anything. And we think, well, I guess I'm just not that David type that hears these clear things from the Lord. And I would just say this. There are many ways to inquire of the Lord. Go to his word. Go to his people. Ask them for wisdom. Ask them for their understanding of God's word. Look to the wisdom sections throughout the Bible, Proverbs in particular. These are all things that can be ways that we inquire of the Lord. And I just wonder that if we as a church, if we began to relate to God in the way that David did here, inquiring of the Lord, how different of a place this would be, how different our lives would be. I think often, if I'm speaking for myself, I walk around like Saul, running my own life, using God as a superstitious token. David didn't do that. David sought the Lord, inquired of the Lord. And so, church, I want David here to, to show us a way that we can all relate to the, to the Lord more. So these are a handful of the details about David's kingship 
that kind of start off the way that David is king for the first seven to ten years of him being king. And I hope that we could see God in the midst of this. In the midst of this, one thing that's really fun to do in the midst of this, though, is to realize what Jesus said about how the whole Old Testament points to him. And so even these details about David's life and his, how he was king really just point to the true and cr- greater king, Jesus. Right, like Jesus came into a world full of Joabs and Abners and lived among them. And in fact, it was the Joabs and the Abners of his day who put him on the cross to be executed. And it was that mechanism by which he took care of all of the sin in the world. That he died for all the sin in the world. Jesus came into the world and he was committed to his bride was part of why he came. He was committed to his bride, which the New Testament and the Old Testament says is his people, the church. He was so committed to us that he never came to earth looking to use us as objects. And Jesus, he has the ultimate heart after God. Not only because he is part of the triune God and his heart is knit together in some sense between father, son, spirit, but because he also is God in the flesh. He has the very heart of God. And so we can look at David's heart after God and we can realize that Jesus showed us a much better heart after God that was actually the very heart of God. And so even in these stories where there's all these details and you go, what's going on here? Very often you can see how they point to where, how Jesus fulfilled that in a much more beautiful and powerful way. So church, may we not gloss over the details in the Bible. May we seek to hear from God in them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these details. Thank you for the, the historical accounts we have. Thank you for speaking to us through them. God, there's lots of things to see there, and I just ask that whatever it is that you want us to see, that we see those things. God, please move in our midst, speak to us, change us. Help us to see how you are always behind the scenes working everything towards your restoration. God, help us to see the mirror of David in the ways that we objectify people for our own use or as a move of power. And God, help us to seek you in new ways, to see there are other ways we can relate to you that we can inquire of you and ask you what our next step should be as people. So God, Holy Spirit, really empower us this morning to do those things. Amen.